Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. The morning after Tom Sawyer skipped school to go swimming, Aunt Polly exacted one of the most famous punishments in history. Tom, writes Mark Twain, appeared on the sidewalk with a bucket of whitewash and a long-handled brush. He surveyed the fence, and all gladness left him, and a deep melancholy settled down upon his spirit. Thirty yards of board fence, nine feet high, sighing. He dipped his brush and passed it along the topmost plank, repeated the operation, did it again, compared the insignificant whitewashed streak with the far-reaching continent of unwhitewashed fence, and sat down discouraged. He began to think of the fun he had planned for this day, and his sorrows multiplied. Soon the free boys would come tripping along on all sorts of delicious expeditions and they would make fun of him for having to work. The very thought of it burned him like fire. At this dark and helpless moment, an inspiration burst upon him, nothing less than a grand, magnificent inspiration. He took up his brush and went tranquilly to work. Presently, Ben Rogers hove into sight the very boy of all boys whose ridicule Tom had been dreading. Ben stared a moment and then said, Hi. No answer. Tom surveyed his last touch with an eye of an artist. Then he gave his brush another gentle sweep and surveyed the result as before. Hello, old chap. You got to work? Say, I'm going to go swimming. Don't you wish you could? But of course, you'd rather work, wouldn't you? Tom contemplated the boy a bit and said, what do you call work? Why ain't that work? Tom resumed his whitewashing and answered carelessly, well, maybe it is and maybe it ain't. All I know is it suits Tom Sawyer. Oh, come on now. You don't mean to let on that you like it. The brush continued to move. Like it? Well, I don't see why I oughtn't to like it. Doesn't a boy get a chance to whitewash a fence every day? No, he doesn't. Well, that put the thing in a new light. Tom swept his brush daintily back and forth, stepped back to note the effect, added a touch here and there, criticized the effect again, Ben watching every move and getting more and more interested, more and more absorbed. And presently he said, 
Say, Tom, let me whitewash a little. Mark Twain may and may not have known what he was doing with this charming passage, which ends with not just Ben, but a steady stream of boys actually turning over their treasures, an apple, marbles, a piece of blue bottle glass, all in exchange for the fun of whitewashing Aunt Polly's fence. Work, he concludes, consists of whatever a body is obliged to do. And play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. This is actually now known as the Sawyer effect. The magic that turns work into play or conversely play into work. I suspect knowing how to perform or avoid this trick might come in handy. In the ensuing 140 years, some really interesting experiments on the Sawyer effect have produced wildly unexpected outcomes. In one preschool, researchers identified the children who most liked to draw in their free time and divided them into three groups. The first group was shown a good player certificate with a blue ribbon and told that they could earn it if they made a drawing. The second group was invited to draw, and when they were done, they were surprised with a good player certificate. The third group was simply invited to draw with no reward. Two weeks later, the children in the surprise award and the no reward group were drawing just as passionately as ever. But the group that had been incentivized with the good player certificate showed much less interest in drawing. The introduction of an expected reward had turned play into work. Digging deeper, the researchers learned that it wasn't rewards that had killed the fun. The culprit was the so-called contingent incentives, that carrot and stick reward. If you do this, then you'll get that. In further studies involving adults, time and again, offering a reward meant game over. Play became work over and over again. Everyone from scientists working on grants to artists working on commissions, everyone experiences statistically significantly less creativity than those working from their own inspiration. Grantees and commissioned artists alike report feeling constrained. The joy goes out of the work. And the higher the incentive, the worse the performance. One study concluded it is those who are least motivated to pursue extrinsic rewards who eventually receive them. Contingent incentives and carrot and stick rewards are a losing proposition. Why? Because it turns out there's this deeply human need to direct our own lives. We like choices. We like freedom. And we like turning work into play and doing what we do in the service of something larger than ourselves. Anglican priest John Henry Newman said, 
virtue is its own reward. Virtue, he wrote, brings with it the truest and highest pleasure. But if we cultivate it only for pleasure's sake, we are selfish and will never gain the pleasure. He was right. 200 years later, a study of blood donors concluded that offering to pay them actually reduced the blood supply by nearly half. It turns out that money taints the desire to do something good and short circuits altruism. When the American Red Cross says that donating blood is a feeling that money can't buy, they're not kidding. It's not that we don't like rewards. In one study, people were offered one for giving blood with the immediate option to donate that reward to a children's charity, and they gave enthusiastically. The problem comes only when inherently interesting, creative, or noble tasks are mixed with rewards. Again, these if-then rewards turn out to be a terrible idea. Here's a good story. It's told by author Daniel Pink. In the spring of 2009, as the world economy was reeling and all eyes were on the financial malpractice that had stoked that crisis, a few second-year Harvard Business School students glanced in the mirror and wondered if they were the problem. The people they'd aspired to, aspired to be, financiers, corporate deal-makers, weren't, it turned out, heroes in an epic tale, but villains in a tale of evil and corruption. Many high-profile business people were the ones who had pushed our finance system to the brink. These students looked around at their classmates and they saw the seeds of similar behavior. Just a few years earlier, a survey of business school students revealed that 56% had admitted to cheating regularly. Fearing that was once what was once a badge of honor had become three scarlet letters, MBA, they created the MBA oath, a Hippocratic oath for business grads in which they pledged their fealty to causes above and beyond the bottom line. It's not a legal document, it's a code of conduct. And the conduct it recommends leans more toward purpose than profit. It begins, as a manager, my purpose is to serve the greater good by bringing people and resources together to create value that no single individual can create alone. It continues, I will safeguard the interests of my shareholders, coworkers, customers, and the society. I will strive to create sustainable economic, social, and environmental prosperity worldwide. In just a few weeks, about a quarter of the graduating class had taken the oath and signed the pledge. Max Anderson, one of the student founders, said, my hope is that at our 25th reunion, our class will not be known for how much money we made or how much money we gave back to the school, but for how the world was a better place as a result of our leadership. Today, more than 300 institutions have embraced the MBA oath. We like turning work into play and doing what we do in the service 
of something larger than ourselves. Virtue is its own reward. The spiritual lesson in all of this has to do with asking ourselves why we do what we do. Really asking and really listening for the answer. What is driving you? If we're chasing something outside ourselves, chances are after the momentary thrill of overtaking it and grasping it, it's going to slip through our hands or feel pretty hollow. Is that all there is? But leading from both our mind and our heart, attending to that connection between what we think and what we feel, savoring freedom and the journey itself will make it sweet and joyful. Circling back to Tom Sawyer's fence, one last brief story. In the spring of my senior year in college, a group of us spent a week at a friend's family cottage on a little island off the coast of New York, entrusted by her father to open it up for the summer, dust away the winter's cobwebs, mop the floors, wash the windows, shake the sheets, air it out. It was a morning's work. And then we were free to enjoy ourselves and feel all the nostalgia of the fleeting time before we would graduate, disperse, and live the grown-up life before us. The cottage was set on a huge property, surrounded by a stockade fence, badly in need of paint. It wasn't on the to-do list. This wasn't a punishment, nor there would, be, would there be any reward. But somehow, you know what's coming, we got it into our heads to paint it. Day after day, we got up every morning and painted. We talked and dreamed and remembered and painted. We listened to the radio, sang along and painted. We picnicked, napped in its shade. We painted and painted and painted. At the end of the week, my friend's father arrived. I can only imagine that he was stealing himself for the eventuality of what he thought he would find. But as he pulled into the driveway and saw the fence, I saw the look on his face, something like shock and stunned disbelief. We all stood there in silence. Without a word, he got out of the car and began to walk the perimeter of the property. We followed like ducklings. For a long time, he didn't speak. He walked the whole outside. He slipped through a gate and walked the whole inside. And finally, he turned and looked at us. You did this? And he was quiet again, composing himself. I know you didn't do this for pay. And fortunately for you, I'm in no position to pay you. You can only begin to understand this now, but this is a secret that some people never learn. Doing something for someone else is its own reward. Thank you, he said. I will never forget this. And you will never forget this.
he was right. Beloved spiritual companions, let's do away with the carrot and stick. Virtue is its own reward. May we lead from both our minds and our hearts, savoring the journey itself. May we enjoy choices and freedom and the feelings that money can't buy. Work is what a body is obliged to do. And play is whatever a body is not obliged to do. Does a boy get a chance to whitewash a fence every day? Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.